So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Timothy O'Shea, Principal of the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the Assembly Hall for the first event in the University of Edinburgh's Enlightenment Lecture Series, uh, which is supported by Scottish Power. The university, the city, and Scotland as a whole will forever be associated with the far-reaching transformations of the intellectual, spiritual, cultural, and economic spheres which were born of Scotland's role in the first great Enlightenment period. Tonight, and throughout this series of lectures, we celebrate that legacy, and in the shadow of the great figures from the past, we aspire to mirror their achievements so that our own age might in future also be regarded as enlightened. This is not beyond our city. The necessary intellectual fabric is all about us here in Edinburgh. To quote the anthropologist Margaret Mead, to be essential to the life of a country, a city must have a soul, a university, a great art or music school, a cathedral or a great mosque or temple, a great laboratory or scientific center, as well as the libraries and museums and galleries that bring past and present together. Edinburgh has this raw stuff of intellectual life in abundance. It is this milieu, the environments of the city of Edinburgh, which underpins our aspiration to be the engine of a new enlightenment. To witness colleagues' groundbreaking academic endeavors brought to bear on the challenges facing our world, and to see the university community's intellectual, practical, and very human responses to those self-same issues is in turn exciting and inspiring. The adjectives exciting, inspiring, and humbling are equally well applied to the achievements of our speaker tonight, Irene Subida Khan. Irene studied law at the University of Manchester and at Harvard, specializing in public international law and human rights. She went on to play a role in founding the development organization Concern Universal and worked as a human rights activist with the International Commission of Jurists. In 1980, she became the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and during her time with the UN, <coughs> acted as chief of mission in India, led the refugees team in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia and was appointed Deputy Director of International Protection in 1999. She joined Amnesty International as Secretary General in August 2001. She's the first woman, the first Asian, and the first Muslim to lead the world's largest human rights organization. She has guided Amnesty into its fifth decade in the challenging global context which has followed the attacks of 11 September 2001. It's particularly fitting for us because Amnesty International is an organization which is supported by many of the University of Edinburgh students. I'm delighted to have the privilege of asking such a prominent and fitting figure to open this series of lectures. In the spirit of the Enlightenment, Dr. Khan has worked tirelessly to uphold that liberty which Adam Ferguson observed results from the government of laws, a power erected to guard us, and a barrier which the caprice of man cannot transgress. 
Please join me now in welcoming Dr. Khan. Professor O'Shea, ladies and gentlemen, friends, it's a great privilege and honor to be invited to give the first Enlightenment lecture at Edinburgh University. And I think it's only right that Scottish Power, which is in the business of producing light, should actually support the endeavor uh, to throw light on today's social problems. The Enlightenment marked a great period in the history of this country, of Europe, and indeed of the world. And the legacy of Hume and Smith uh, continue way beyond their own age into this time, and indeed thinking, are thinking today on free trade, on self-regulation of markets and self-interest of individuals, continue to influence economic policies and strategies as we grapple with the challenges of globalization and liberalization, with notions of public good and human rights of state and corporate responsibilities. By putting the individual at the center of social concern, the thinkers of the Enlightenment actually sowed the seeds of freedom and responsibility that centuries later became the fertile ground for the human rights movement. But of course, as we know, it was not until the Second World War and the horrors of the Holocaust that human rights came onto the international agenda. And in 1945, as you know, the UN Charter committed all member states to uphold human rights. In 1948 came the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the first human rights convention was the Genocide Convention. And then through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were a huge range of international treaties and standards that developed the edifice of human rights as we know it today. And it has been followed by national laws and legislation. But it would be wrong to believe that this rights revolution was largely an initiative of governments. On the contrary, it has always been and still is an endeavor of people around the world, human rights defenders, social activists, journalists, trade unionists, lawyers, NGOs from small local groups to large international NGOs like Amnesty International, which has more than two million members in over 100 countries around the world. And today, women's groups, development and environmental organizations, indigenous people's movement, all speak the language of human rights. They have used human rights to shape their agenda. And the language and power of human rights has fueled political change, such as the end of apartheid in South Africa or the emergence of democracy in Eastern Europe. It has helped turn the tide against impunity in Latin America. But all these achievements cannot, of course, detract from the reality today that in far too many places, in far too many ways, human rights continue to be abused, undermined, ignored, and eroded. As a human rights advocate, I am daily confronted with the hypocrisy selectivity and double standards of governments. As a human rights lawyer, I'm deeply frustrated by the disconnect 
between law, policy, and practice in human rights. Human rights are promoted and protected by the international community through the United Nations, but that system consistently fails to hold states to account properly. State sovereignty, on which human rights law is based, is under pressure from armed groups on the one hand, from big business on the other. In many countries, government is ridden with corruption, mismanagement, abuse of power, and political violence. In others, economic globalization has brought wealth uh, in a way in which Adam Smith could never have dreamt of. But globalization has also increased disparities in such a way that the dream, the promise of universal declaration of human rights remains a hollow one for millions of people. I'm just coming from India, and there you can see very starkly both the opportunities as well as challenges of human rights. But overshadowing these major challenges is a new and dangerous threat. The belief that eroding fundamental principles of human rights can increase our collective security. This is a very dangerous trend that we see in the world today. And why should it be a priority here for you in Scotland? I believe that the impact of this trend is, will have far-reaching consequences. And these are questions not just about our freedom and security. These are questions about the kind of society we want to make for ourselves the kind of society that we want to bring up our children in. And that is why what we are seeing today is the same struggle for ideas, values, and principles that marked the Enlightenment. On 7th of July last year, the bomb blasts in London brought home the fears of 9-11, of Beslan, of Bali, of Baghdad. I was in London on the 7th of July, and to be honest, I was afraid. I was actually participating in a ceremony to mark uh, the death of Amnesty's founder, Peter Benenson, in central London in a church. And as we sat there in the church and heard the sirens outside, not knowing whether my daughter was safe at home, whether colleagues were safe, whether friends were safe, I was afraid and worried. And so I do not undervalue the fear of people, nor do I underestimate the threat posed by armed groups, and Amnesty International condemns unequivocally such attacks as gross abuse of human rights. But we also condemn the way in which such terror is in many cases being confronted by governments. Last week, we saw again the horrible images of US abusive prisoners in Abu Ghraib. We also saw videos uh, indicating possible involvement of British troops in ill-treating Iraqi civilians. There was horror and shock, but no real surprise, because there is a red thread running from Guantanamo to Bagram and Abu Ghraib. Last November, Amnesty International, together with Reprieve, another NGO, hosted a conference in London. Uh, it was the largest gathering ever, of former detainees from Guantanamo, as well as family members and representatives of those who are detained there. People came from Afghanistan, from Russia, from Germany, from Jordan, as well as Britain. And many of them who had never spoken of their experience 
described what happened there. And let me read to you what one former detainee said. I was picked up at gunpoint by five or six special branch undercover officers who were told to pick me up on behalf of the United States. When I questioned the British interrogator from MI6, he told me it was out of his hands. He was there to question and observe. The Americans were running the show. I was beaten up, threatened with being sent to Morocco, Egypt, Cuba. My toe was infected and had to be amputated. I was operated on by a trainee nurse while I was awake. I could see what was happening and I was being interrogated at the same time. That happened in Guantanamo Bay, but it is not a distant foreign problem. That detainee was a British national. Right now in the UK, a number of foreigners are being processed for deportation as they're considered by the Home Secretary to be a threat to national security. In December, I visited one of them, an Algerian man, paralyzed by polio since he was a child, wheelchair-bound, living with his family in a small flat in East London. He arrived in this country 15 years ago and sought asylum because he had been persecuted in Algeria. He showed me the scars on his arm from the torture that he had suffered there. He was detained from December 2001 until February 2005 without charge or trial at Belmarsh Prison and other high security prisons. He was then released in early 2005 following the House of Lords decision to overturn the act under which he had been detained on the grounds that it was discriminatory. He was then put under a control order and after the London bombings, he was rearrested and threatened with deportation to Algeria, although uh, the British authorities are of course aware that he had been tortured there previously. And he is now under house arrest, awaiting the outcome of his deportation hearings. He is not allowed to step outside his house, even to get physiotherapy. He has stopped going out into the communal gardens because he's not allowed under his control order to greet his neighbors. Now, the interesting thing is, the Home Secretary has designated him as a threat to national security, but no one has interrogated him in the last five years. No police, no security services. I met another detainee in similar circumstances in Luton, and he is living in the apartment with his wife and six children. And his wife said to me, the public believe that my husband is a terrorist suspect but there are seven of us in this house, myself and my six children too, and we are all suffering a collective punishment. So the battle between security and human rights has a painful human cost to it. Of course, in one sense, it's not new. Uh, this struggle between security and human rights, justifying restrictions on human rights for the sake of security is well known. We remember, of course, the Latin American dictatorships, the communist regimes in Eastern Europe, using those same arguments. And there are many dictatorships today that do so too. But what is new is that Western democracies are now also using that same argument. Of course, governments have the right. Indeed, they have the duty to protect citizens from terrorist attacks. They have the duty to investigate, arrest, prosecute, and punish. But if instead of acting within the rule of law, governments overreact, they endanger those very values 
the very society that they must protect. And in the wake of 9-11, we see precisely that happening. A pattern of retrograde measures, mass detention of people without charge or trial in Guantanamo Bay, in Bagram, in an unknown number of hidden sites. Now, Amnesty knows from its work over more than 40 years that incommunicado detention breeds torture and other abuse of human rights. So we're not surprised, really, to see these stories emerging. And, of course, now there is information about secret locations, about CIA black sites and secret flights to transport prisoners to countries which are less scrupulous about their interrogation techniques. And the interesting thing is, a new management speak has emerged in the area of human rights. Uh, ghost detainees are people who are being held in secret locations uh, and stress and duress is another term for what we have always known as torture, inhumane and degrading treatment. Extraordinary rendition is the practice by which suspects are abducted and moved from one country to another in a legal limbo without judicial oversight and then handed over to regimes that practice torture. Flying over on the plane today, I read in the New Statesman an article by Stephen Poole, who has just written a book called Unspeak. And uh, Stephen discusses how language is used to create spin. But in creating spin, uh, those using that language actually convey certain very important messages. Take the use of the word rendering. Now, rendering, says Stephen, is actually commonly used for processing meat. And he says, and I quote him, suspects who are rendered to foreign torturers are anonymous pieces of meat to be converted into useful information. Amnesty knows from its work on the issue of torture that torturers dehumanize people. That is the way in which they can actually conduct torture. And so people are put in the shadowy criminal justice system, disappear with no protection of the law, and because no one knows who they are, where they are, who's holding them, lawyers on their behalf cannot submit any legal petitions to any authorities for their release. It is really a Kafkaesque uh, system that is in place. Now, Amnesty International interviewed three Yemeni nationals uh, last October. Now, these three people had not met each other, but we got, and they were all three of them, were in prison in Yemen when we interviewed them. And the story that we heard from the three had eerie similarities. Two of them had been abducted in Amman, one of them in Tanzania. They were then uh, blindfolded, uh, moved around, shuttled from one place to the other. They didn't know where they were. Prisoners often didn't, uh, their, their, uh, sorry, the, the prison guards did not speak to them often. Uh, they were tortured, interrogated, and then handed back to the Yemeni authorities. And last year, I met a Canadian national, Meher Arar, who had been intercepted in the US by US immigration officials and sent to Syria, where he was interrogated and tortured before being returned to Canada. And now there is an investigation uh, in Canada by the Canadian government to see whether Canadian officials were complicit in his transfer and interrogation. 
And in recent months, of course, there is more information coming out about the collusion of European countries um, in this surrendering of prisoners. And as you know, Preswick Airport. Um, there's information that Preswick Airport was also used by planes uh, refueling on their way to or from these countries. Uh, when I met the Foreign Secretary a couple of weeks ago, he assured me that no UK airport had been used to render uh, any prisoners. And he told me that he had been assured by the Americans that, that, uh, that they had not done so, nor do they intend to do so in the future. I would have preferred more than simply words of assurance, because we know how words can be used, as Stephen Poole says. Now, when Condoleezza Rice claims that the US government does not practice torture, what she doesn't say, that the US government actually defines torture in a very different way uh, from the way in which it is defined by other members of the international community, including the UK. Now, when US and other Western governments are engaged in such practices, what kind of a message are they sending out to others? They are sending out a message that repression is legitimate. And so we have seen, for instance, that in Uzbekistan, human rights defenders have been charged with terrorism. Uh, we've seen peaceful demonstrators massacred in May 2005, labeled as terrorist extremists. In China, the Chinese no longer, authorities no longer designate dissidents from the Uyghur minority as counter-revolutionary. They call them terrorists. So from Australia to Zimbabwe, we have seen new laws, policies, practices coming in. And of course, it has happened also in the UK. Now, as you all know, the UK is no stranger um, to attacks, violent attacks. And it has, even prior to 9-11, it had one of the most draconian uh, laws. Uh, and yet, in November 2001, it introduced the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act, an act which brought back, in effect, internment, the possibility to hold people without charge on or trial. And that was the act that the House of Lords then threw out last year. And of course, uh, there was a new act in 2005 uh, that allows the Home Secretary to place control orders on people. And so we see what's happening here in the UK, an interesting trend. There's a shift away from judicial involvement to executive decisions. Instead of prosecuting people who are considered to be terrorist suspects or threats to national security. Instead of trying them in court, the tendency is to either put a control order on them through an executive decision or to deport them. And the same trend to shift the executive away from scrutiny we see also in the case of international law where the UK government has, has argued in the courts that their soldiers are not bound by human rights treaties in Iraq and Afghanistan. And last December, there was actually a court of appeal decision uh, that disagreed with that position of the government. And today, in The Guardian, there is an article where Mr. Reid um, says that actions such as this are demoralizing the uh, British soldiers. And the action that he is talking about is actually the death in custody of Iraqi civilians in the custody of British soldiers. There are other uh, impact, I think, of these uh, terrorism 
uh, debate. And we've seen the way in which uh, there is targeting of minorities and asylum seekers. Do you know that I have five times more chances of being stopped by the British Transport Police than many of you do? And that is simply because of my color. And this is from the statistics of uh, the Transport Police. So how can you expect a collective, a common stake in security to be developed when your security is being ensured at the expense of my rights. And this is why I think we see what we do see uh, in the streets of Gaza or Lebanon or other, uh, some of these other Muslim countries where people are now protesting, ostensibly, the Danish cartoons. But I feel that it is much more than that. Uh, of course, the lack of trust, the mistrust that exists between communities is being exploited by groups and spilling out on the streets. But possibly the most dangerous issue for Amnesty International today is the effort to weaken the absolute ban on torture. Now, under international law, torture and all other forms of ill-treatment are prohibited absolutely. Now, in 1973, Amnesty published its first report on torture. And we said then that torture thrives on secrecy and impunity. Torture feeds on discrimination and fear. Torture gains ground when official condemnation of it is less than absolute. And it is interesting that we are yet to see a proper condemnation of what happened in Abu Ghraib. There has been no investigation of any senior US official. Uh, <coughs> and UK security officials have actually interrogated both British citizens and British residents in detention centers run by the Americans in Guantanamo and uh, Bagram. Now, in 1973, Amnesty wrote, those who consciously justify torture rely essentially on the philosophic argument of a lesser evil for a greater good. They reinforce this with an appeal to the doctrine of necessity. Right now, there is a case before the European Court of Human Rights where the British government uh, has submitted a third party uh, uh, submission. The case is uh, relating to an Algerian national uh, living in the Netherlands. But the British government has submitted a, a, a petition to the European court asking the court to allow people uh, to, be, to, to, to be returned uh, back to a situation where they could face torture, providing there are national security concerns. In other words, national security should be a defense against the risk of torture. Now, there is also another issue here uh, with, uh, in, in terms of the weakening of the absolute ban and torture, and that is the negotiations that the British government is currently engaged in, which uh, are to get assurances, diplomatic assurances, that people can be returned to countries where they risk torture on the basis of these assurances uh, that they will not then be tortured. And the British government has signed agreements with Libya and Jordan and is negotiating one with Algeria. Now, Amnesty International, of course, believes that a commitment such as this is not worth the paper it is written on. And when I mentioned it to the Home Secretary, he said to me that he thought Amnesty International was being neo-colonialist. Now, I found it pretty amusing that as a citizen 
of a former colony, I should be accused of neo-colonialism by one by a citizen of a former colonial power. Uh, these are all measures by which uh, the absolute ban on torture is being prohibited. But the only way in which torture has been eradicated is the way in which the UK government itself has done it, through systemic change, through laws, through independent monitoring and complaints mechanisms, through an independent prosecution system. And it's in these ways that we should deal with torture. But unfortunately, instead of that, we see the Attorney General making a case in the House of Lords that evidence obtained by torture committed abroad can be introduced in UK courts now. And I'm glad to say that the House of Lords did not agree with the Attorney General. And you will remember that last year, after the 7th of July bombings, the Prime Minister made a statement in which he said that he would be tightening up rules on deportation and exclusion. And he justified his stand by saying, the rules of the game are changing. Lord Stein gave a very good response. He said, the maintenance of the rule of law is not a game. It is about access to justice, about fundamental human rights and democratic values. And so we come to a situation where really we need to do a major rethinking of where we are going because upholding human rights is not just an issue of a counter-terrorism strategy. It is actually an essential part of it. The issue is not balancing human rights and security. It's a question of integrating both. And I would suggest um, that as this is the Enlightenment series and we are encouraged to think forward, that there are three key issues. The first, I would say, is that the focus should be not on national security, but on human security. A narrowly focused security agenda actually gives priority to the powerful and the privileged over the poor and the marginalized. The real sources of insecurity for most people in the world today are not terrorist bombs. They are the division between haves and have-nots, between citizens and immigrants, between the North and South. They are the threats that are caused by the proliferation of arms. Uh, they are issues of poverty, the risk of HIV, and now perhaps bird flu, discrimination, violence against women. And global insecurity, far from diminishing the value of human rights, has actually increased it. And more emphasis needs to be put on precisely dealing with those root causes, with more funds for clean water, for health care, for education. Now, violence, we all know, is addressed through better, not brutal, policing. And in the same way, insecurity and violence are best tackled by effective, accountable states. And so if we want to build a more secure world, there must be a paradigm shift in the way in which security is discussed today. Human rights has to be put at the center of that security debate, not in contradiction to it. My second point would be that the UK can and must take a leadership role in setting this agenda. Last year, Gordon Brown addressed a group from this very podium where I am speaking from, and he spoke about Africa and global poverty. And you, the people of Edinburgh, marched on the streets last year to make poverty history. That is an agenda that must not be forgotten. But we must not forget that human rights don't exist in small compartments of this and that right. They exist as an integrated whole, and therefore the UK must support not only economic and social rights, 
but also resist the attack on civil and political rights at home and abroad. And there is much that the United Kingdom can do. Its foreign policy has been very progressive on the issue of the International Criminal Court in introducing uh, instruments to eradicate torture internationally. And these are, and of course, um, supporting the abolition of the death penalty. And the United Kingdom has pushed these policies internationally in the teeth of opposition from the United States. And I would hope that the leadership in the UK will continue to take that strong stand, to be a good friend of the United States. But being a good friend means speaking the truth, standing up and telling your friend what is wrong. And I hope that the UK will do that. And last but not least, in this new way of looking ahead, I think we must remember that principles and core values cannot be subordinated to strategy. And here I make a plea, not just to governments, but to people, to ordinary people like you and others, to stand up for the basic values in which we believe. Acts of terror and acts of torture are both reprehensible and must be condemned. There can be no excuse for either. 30 years ago, I go back to Amnesty's report of 1973, Amnesty wrote, History shows that torture is never limited to just once. As soon as its use is permitted once, as for example, in one of the extreme circumstances, like a bomb, it is logical to use it on people who might plant, plan bo bombs, or on people who might think of planting bombs, or on people who defend the kind of people who might think of planting bombs. So in the end, the absolute prohibition of torture and cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment rests on moral grounds. Torture is the ultimate corruption of humanity. It is that line on the ground that we must not cross. And I hope that public opinion in this country will take a strong stand on those issues because our security and security of many others will depend on our courage today to stand for moral values. We have a choice. We could live with our fear, or we could speak out. And like the thinkers during the Enlightenment, I hope that the thinkers and doers of today will also take a stand for what they believe in. Thank you. So that was a very inspiring and compelling analysis. Uh, we now have 20 minutes for questions. Uh, so, um, and if you're asking a question, uh, would you please tell the audience and Dr. Khan who you are? There's a question here, if you take the microphone. Uh, Dennis Canavan, member of the Scottish Parliament. Dr. Khan, having sat through many boring lectures at Edinburgh University in the 1960s, <laughs> I congratulate you. This was a breath of fresh air and the most brilliant and enlightening lecture I've ever heard under the auspices of my alma mater. 
and, and I hope that the series of Enlightenment lectures will continue. But uh, I would like to ask you about the role of the media in exposing um, violation of human rights. Within the past few days, we've had our Secretary of State for Defense hinting very strongly to the media that somehow they should be restrained in exposing violations of human rights. Do you agree that the media has a duty, a responsibility to expose violations of human rights, whether they are on the part of the American army, the British army, Al-Qaeda, or anyone else? The obligation of the media arises, of course, from freedom of expression, the right of speech, the, the right to speak freely, the right to write freely and publish freely. Of course, there are restrictions. Those restri restrictions are usually restrictions of public interest. Now, what is the public interest in not publishing stories of human rights abuse? That is the question that I would ask Mr. Reid. What public interest is being served in covering up abuses that are taking place? In fact, I find it strange that it is the media that is revealing these abuses. Take the issue of Abu Ghraib. Now, long before the pictures hit the newspapers, um, Amnesty International and other human rights groups had actually written to both the British authorities and to the American authorities with our concerns because we had heard stories about ill-treatment in detention centers, and nothing happened. As we all know, the Red Cross uh, was aware of it and had tried to raise those issues, and nothing happened. And when things moved, it was only when those horrible pictures uh, came out on the website and in the New Yorker. So in a sense, the media is slipping in uh, to provide that transparent role uh, of information. Much of the information that is coming out is coming out because of applications made under the Freedom of Information Act in the UK or in the US. And to me, it seems that information, the right to free information is an essential attribute of a free and open democratic society. And that is what acts of um, terrorists uh, want to destroy. And we must not allow that to happen by ourselves putting these restrictions on our own right to information. Okay. So, yeah. Tony L, University Rector, in your excellent address, you raised the question of incommunicado detention. What is Amnesty doing in the case of Tariq Aziz and some of his colleagues who cannot be contacted by their lawyers, Emil Ludo, Matthew Fopin, and others? For Amnesty International, protecting the rights of the guilty is as important as protecting the rights of the innocent. And therefore, uh, we, as you know, take a stand uh, to protect the rights of anyone who is accused of um, serious crimes. And in this particular case, uh, we have actually lobbied both with the US authorities and with the allies of the US to ensure uh, that the trials are carried out in a fair way, that people are treated. There are about 50 plus um, high security prisoners that are being held uh, in Iraq 
And we have intervened, we lobby, we uh, in fact attended uh, the trial of uh, Saddam Hussein. Now we come with a background of great credibility on this issue because as you know, in the late 90s, it was Amnesty's reports that threw light on the killings in Halabja at a time when the US administration was not ready to believe us. And so now we continue to throw light on those same issues and we hope that others will take up the points that we are making because our strength lies uh, in the strength of public opinion and that is what we need to do. What pains me very much is that when we talk about the counter-terrorism measures that erode human rights, when we talk about torture, when we talk about ill-treatment, we don't see people outraged about it on the streets. On the contrary, uh, people, the sense that people have is, well, if all these restrictions make me a little safer, why not? The terrible thing about all these measures are that they affect people on the margins of our society, and therefore, we turn our eyes away. Tariq Aziz, or um, uh, the Algerian gentleman that I spoke to, or many others, are in the margins of our society now. Um, but what is being destroyed is not just a few lives, I say just, not few lives, but some fundamental principles. And I fear that we will pay a very heavy price down the road for not speaking out loudly enough uh, for those very principles that are at the foundation of our society. Thank you, Dr. Khan, for this uh, wonderful reflection. I'm Anderson. I'm a student of theology from, I'm from India. My, I request your reflections on, in the event of globalization, which is spearheaded by economics, where human beings are defined in different terms, whether human, some are human and some are not. What is the steps taken by Amnesty International to define human rights, which protects individuals um, from the people who define who are human and who are not? And also, having worked in the UN, what is the relevance of UN in the present if I may say, the empire politics or the polarization of international politics. Where do you see the relevance of UN in this situation? Thank you. Well, I think those two questions could be uh, the subject of another lecture. <laughs> uh, globalization, as I said, I was in India uh, earlier this week, and I think there you see globalization being played out, all the good bits of it as well as the bad bits of it. And in India, I met a lot of people, young businessmen, journalists, government officials, very excited uh, about growth and about the opportunities, about the new chances. But I also met a lot of activists, environmental activists, uh, activists representing women, activists representing the poorer parts of the country. And they were worried. They were worried about the environmental degradation that was taking place. They were worried about the dispossession of people from their land. They were worried about violence that was then erupting in these parts of India, the insecurity. So I think when you raise the issue of globalization, I think it's very interesting, particularly given um, the, the, the history and the legacy of Scotland and Scottish thinkers on this issue. Uh, the key challenge here is how do we bring the marginalized into this human rights debate? 
Now, amnesty historically has worked on civil and political rights, and we are best known for our work on prisoners of conscience and political prisoners. But four years ago, amnesty's membership through a democratic decision I decided that we would expand our mission to cover also economic and social rights. In fact, to show that human rights are indivisible. And so we are actually increasing our work. In India, for example, we are looking at a project on Adivasis. These are indigenous uh, people in some of the poorest parts of India to see how uh, their human rights are being affected. They have no access to justice because they are poor. They are, uh, have no access to basic services. To the right, they have no right to health or education or even employment. Um, so in that sense, we hope that we can bring out the stronger message of human, all human rights for all. You talked about the United Nations. Now, it has been unfortunate the way in which the United Nations has been marginalized, has been attacked, both from within as well as outside. Some of the criticism is very valid, others perhaps uh, less so. But the interesting thing about human rights and the United Nations is that there is no other way in which you can create an international system of human rights without the United Nations. You can provide security on a bilateral or multilateral basis by, by governments. You can provide development in the same way. But when it comes to human rights, the very notion of human rights is bound in the concept of international community and the no notion of international responsibility for human rights. And that is where I think the unique uh, function of the United Nations lies. And I hope very much that there will be a process of regeneration in the United Nations. Uh, there will be a new Secretary General coming in early next year. And under his or her leadership, I hope the United Nations will put human rights back as it was originally on its charter. My name's Caroline Carlock, and I'm a graduate of Edinburgh University. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, people have different countries, different races, different religions, have different ideas of human rights. And I wanted to ask you personally what you would do in the situation which I found myself three months ago in Cuba, where I went to a Santeria party, and two people came to the party completely naked, a man and a woman, with no, um, and they had political slogans written on their bodies. And within 10 minutes, the police arrived, and as far as I know, they'd never see, been seen again. I came back to Britain, I phoned Amnesty International, but unless I have the, the names, um, there's nothing I can do about it. What can I do as a private individual in a country like this where it suits Castro, but it suits the United States to have embargo? Um, the fear, everybody's scared, this is a human right, it's an abuse of human rights if you can't talk freely. But their ideas of human rights, they've become so um, immune to what is human right. I wondered what you would have done in my situation. Because I know that I would have been thrown in prison immediately. Um, well, I, I, you have put uh, um, a very important challenge about you know, how do you actually make human rights real for people in situations like that. Um, let, let me put to you the other way around. You know, what has happened in Cuba, in that same island where these two individuals have been arrested simply for writing a slogan on their body, on that same island, on another part of the island, um, there are people who are being detained, hundreds of people who have been detained for three, four years without charge or trial. And what that is actually doing, it is weakening the moral authority of the United States now to point to the treatment of political prisoners in Cuba. 
That's the hidden cost of the war on terror. Now, taking another situation, Sudan. I was in Darfur last year and uh, met after, after Darfur, I went to Khartoum, met with the Minister of Justice and started putting before him, the Minister of Interior, and started putting before him all the cases that we'd had of uh, rape of women, abuse of uh, uh, refugees, and so on. And he turned to me and he said, why are you telling me all this? Go tell the United States about what they're doing on Guantanamo Bay. So you see how difficult it's becoming to raise precisely the kind of cases that need to be raised, the kind of repression, freedom of expression issues, basic fundamental human rights issues in some of these countries because of, of this sort of uh, undermining of the West's authority on many of these issues. What you can do as an individual, I think you can publicize what you have seen and what you have heard. Uh, if you said you didn't have information, you didn't have names and others to provide to Amnesty. So obviously we can't follow that from here. But if you have contacts, if you know who they are, then provide that information and uh, you know, we will try to find out uh, what is happening. Anastasian, student of Kirkcaldy High School, studying Advanced Higher Modern Studies. How much of an impact do you believe the anti-terror legislation in the UK will make to ordinary UK Muslims like myself? Well, I think I gave you the statistics uh, that we got from the British Traffic Police that there are five times uh, more Asian stopped than, than others. Um, I think what, what we have seen talking to um, young Asians, what I have found is that people are angry, people feel excluded, people feel marginalized, and those are precisely the kinds of emotions um, that then create the fertile recruitment ground for, for extremist uh, groups. So I find it extremely unfortunate that at a time more than ever when we need to reach out to people so that we can build a common uh, strategy to make ourselves secure, we find laws that discriminate. Um, and, and the 2001 Act was very clearly discriminatory. It was only addressed to foreigners who were a threat to national security. If they were British citizens who were a threat to national security, nothing could be done. And that's why Mr. Hamza could not be acted upon under that legislation. But this gentleman that I spoke to, the Algerian, was actually locked up uh, for four years. So you create that kind of them and us attitude, which is a very, very dangerous one. Thank you. Uh, Philip Crosby from the Irish Examiner. Um, with regards to Amnesty International um, and the organization, truth remains a core principle to Amnesty's uh, gain. But in an age when uh, the media and trust in the media is so low, and the uh, issue of truth is eroded through spin political circles. How is Amnesty facing up to the challenge for the future uh, in getting its message across through particularly mainstream media and also the advances in uh, technology with regards to information society? Um, I was at a um, panel in, at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, and it was a panel on trust where Richard Edelman, a public relations um, specialist from the US presented statistics which actually showed uh, NGOs including Amnesty very high Amnesty came out number one in trust in Europe and the media actually very very low surprisingly low way below uh, governments and business this year round so you're right in terms of pointing out this issue of trust and truth uh, for Amnesty 
The media is a very important channel, of course, for putting out our message. And generally, the media has been supportive. But more importantly than media, we are a membership-based organization. And we pass the message by mobilizing our people. Because we believe that whenever someone becomes a member of Amnesty, is converted to the ideology of human rights, we build a constituency that can then lobby uh, with those in power and that can bring about social change. So our theory of social change is the individual. Information is very important. Technology is very important. And that's why it's very disturbing what Yahoo and uh, Google and Microsoft have done in the case of China, where precisely an industry that's supposed to provide free information is actually working to close it. So there are many challenges in the area of media. The other is the issue of media ownership. There are many more channels, but if you watch those television channels, who owns them? So it's the same message coming out in many different ways. So I think the whole issue of information is going to be a very challenging one for all of us in the, in the coming years. Stuart Nicol, freelance journalist. Thanks again for an excellent lecture. Your title, War on Terror, War on Liberty. This leads me to the question I've been dying to ask you all day. The reaction to 9-11, which was clearly a heinous act, was a war on terror. But do you think that was the necessary response? The UK have had 30 years of terror from the IRA. In the end, they spoke to them. In the end, they got some kind of agreement to talk. Do you think that the idea of a war on terror was the right response to 9-11. Thank you. Well, I think in a way you have provided the answer to your own um, question, uh, that experience speaks louder than any, any words. And the experience here has been um, through a strategy of negotiation, of inclusion, of discussing issues, and of, of ensuring respect for human rights for all. Because it's only when people feel secure that their rights are protected that they begin to create a environment of confidence in which you can negotiate. Now, if we look at the issue of the war on terror, very early on, the language was good and evil, them and us. And that precisely turned away all those people of, of goodwill who, could have, who would have probably come together to address this problem. So I think there are many unfortunate, unnecessary um, messages that came through at that time. The interesting thing is also about the use of the terminology war on terror. By talking about war, the U.S. administration made it very clear that human rights didn't apply. Human rights don't apply in times of war. By talking of terror, however, they then went on to say, well, international humanitarian law doesn't apply because the war is, is of terror, not of combat. So in that sense, they actually created that gray zone of extralegality. So you see how language has, has actually made things uh, much more uh, difficult. It has been asserted that the, um, what has already happened is to an extent that the terrorists have already won. Do you think that the erosion of our liberties have gone so far that you can say that? Do you, whether or not you can say that, is, are the, is the erosion of our liberties reversible? And um, a slightly different question, even if it's reverse, reversible, is there any political will in any party to reverse it? 
and to make it an absolutely impossible question for you, um, could you also consider, you know, whether there might be a different answer to those questions in the UK and the US? <laughs> um, well, you know, if, if you had asked me a year ago, I probably would have been much less optimistic. But I think 2005 was a very interesting year if we look back at it. We have seen the mood change in 2005. And by the mood, I mean the people, pop popular mood of fear, of taking at face value what authority has said. People have begun to challenge those issues. And therefore, I think look at the US, look at the response to Katrina, look at the way in which uh, President Bush is now conceding on issues. Uh, Sen Senator John McCain introduced the amendment on respecting um, uh, uh, the U U.S. Uh, prohibition on torture in the context of detainees. All and, and Bush had to concede on those issues. So I think there is more pressure coming. Uh, in the U.K., you had a very we had a very interesting House of Lords decision. A number of court cases that have actually gone against the government's arguments. Um, we have seen resistance to extending uh, detention um, to, 60, uh, to 90 days. So these are all messages that are coming, I think, from people. I think there, there is a line, the line that people are not ready to cross. And I think that gives me hope. So I, being someone in amnesty, as you know, um, never lose hope because we are in the business of, of, of spreading hope. We are hope mongers. So in that sense, I think we live with hope. And uh, I don't think there is anything when it comes to values that, values like this, the fundamental values um, that we should lose hope. But I do think that we need to mobilize more people. 2006 could be an interesting year if we had more people speaking out, if we could actually push the tide further in our direction. I think most of us will have come tonight uh, with tremendous respect for Amnesty International. Uh, we came to listen to the chief hope monger uh, talk about an immensely demanding and immensely important topic. And she demonstrated really uh, three very important qualities uh, in her talk and in her answers to some very hard questions. She demonstrated uh, tremendous relevant experience uh, she demonstrated superb analytical powers, but most importantly, she demonstrated a tremendous humanity. So I'd like you now to join with me in thanking Dr. Khan again. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful.